Welcome to Pullback, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. Pullback is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network of Podcasts. You can find our partner shows somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> you can, you can. <laughs> Honestly, I think that was like one of my better intros, even <laughs> when I fucked it up. <laughs> HarbingerMediaNetwork.com. <laughs> oh, I should have guessed that. It's a, it's, it's a good, it's a great website, you know, <laughs> it says what it is. We have to, we have to mention Robbie because Robbie's here. <laughs> oh, Robbie. So friend of the pod, uh, Robert Miller. Hello. Howdy, howdy. So today we are doing another Reacts episode. And I guess the simplest way to explain this is that we're re reacting to two climate documentaries that were both released in 2019. Yeah, we're, we have our finger on the pulse. <laughs> <laughs> so one of them is Planet of the Humans, which is a piece of shit directed by Jeff Gibbs with Michael Moore as the executive producer. We will talk more about why it's terrible later. And the other one, which is I, I thought was actually pretty good, uh, was 2040. And it is directed by Damon Gemmo, who is an Australian director. For those of you who know a lot about documentaries, not me, uh, he's also the one that directed that sugar film, which I'm told is well known. The only thing is that uh, Robbie, Kristen, and I didn't get a chance to watch the Michael Moore movie. So, but you watched it, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, well, you took that like way more of a champ than <laughs> you were expecting. We did actually watch it. We did. I strongly recommend for anyone else who wants to watch it that you watch it at at least two times speed. <laughs> yeah, we actually did watch it, Robbie. We just wanted to we just wanted to make you sad like you watched it without us. But <laughs> the joke backfired because you're so you're so chill. So accommodating. <laughs> also, I hate that movie so much. Really, you just no one should watch it. It is genuinely bad it's so bad terrible we thought that it was going to be bad because it's famously bad but 10 minutes into it we were like oh this is so much worse than we were expecting yeah, yeah. it was shocking because it was just so light on actual like content yeah and a lot of factual errors uh, maybe i should start by just giving a brief like 30 seconds on what each movie is yes uh, we please. have gotten that feedback on our reacts episodes <laughs> <laughs> what are we talking about <laughs> planet of the humans it i mentioned that jeff gibbs directed it but michael moore was the executive producer it is ostensibly a critique of the decision of mainstream environmental groups to partner with corporations that is not actually what this documentary is it's what they claim it is it has been criticized for a lot of factual errors and on reliance on outdated information and climate denial talking points. We'll talk more about this, but the narrative of the documentary, it basically says that, you know, renewables aren't a good solution. And I guess we should all just roll over and die. <laughs> That's what I got from it. And then 2040, which I had mentioned is directed by Damon Gemmo. It is an imagining of an optimistic climate future, what the director calls fact-based dreaming. And he's doing it uh, in the narrative for his four-year-old daughter. So that's pretty cute. Yeah, I was really... Uh, okay, so Robbie, I'm really excited to hear what you thought of these two films. I do recommend everyone should go watch 2040 and no one should ever watch the Michael Moore one. But I am willing to go to bat for 2040 so hard that even if you both hated it, I am not going to back down on how much I love it. It's probably my new favorite movie. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy this Reacts episode format as different from some of the previous Reacts we've done on Pullback 
because we really are like taking two films from the same year that could not have like a more different disposition towards the climate crisis. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely nihilistic nonsense doc. And then 2040 is just like this pure techno optimist, like fun times movie. It's, it was a really like fun contrast watching them both back to back. <laughs> yeah, you did that just this morning, right? <laughs> My comment with CBC Gem is please put on like a fast forward feature on your streams. Please, I beg you. Oh, it's such an awful app, truly. I mean, it, it we were lucky that we were able to watch 2040 at all on CBC Gem. <laughs> Getting it set up was a whole thing. No, we ended up not watching it on CBC Gem. We found out it was available on Apple and we're oh, like, yeah. we'll try that. <laughs> uh, I love a public option, but my God, CBC Gem. <laughs> We need a better funded public option is the real answer here. Yes. And also you should be able to do like CBC gem apps should just be available on TVs. What the fuck? Anyway. <laughs> anyway. But what did you think, Robbie? Let's start with the shitty one so that we can end on a little bit of a happier note with the less shitty one. So what age of the humans? Planet uh, no, of pl the humans. Planet, right. Cause it's a play on planet of the apes. Yeah. <laughs> so a clever. Very clever play. Kyla. <laughs> Uh, like for me part of it was just like the opening sequence starts off with a criticism that i also had for don't look up which is a more contemporary climate change related film um, that i also didn't like very much and one of the major reasons why i didn't like either of them is that like climate change is not going to be this like sudden apocalypse where we're all going to die climate change is going to be like a grinding steady decline in livability of the planet for several decades if not centuries a, we're not looking at like a human extinction of life within like our lifetimes. That is a, as ridiculous of a notion as the idea that like climate change isn't happening. And it really does kind of like prevent us from taking reasonable and useful steps to resolving that crisis. So right from the get go, where they're just like doing this little like gonzo journalist bit of talking to random people on the street about the climate apocalypse sets the movie up for some like really just like it's a shitty premise. It's, it's not real. Like you already know right from the start that these aren't serious ecologists and aren't serious climate change scientists. Yeah, right. Like the, it, the movie starts with him just getting the opinion of like Joe Schmo on the street and presenting it the, as though it's like very factual and we should take it seriously. And it's like you just cherry picked like how many people did you ask this question yeah. to on the street, you know? <laughs> and it's actually it then feeds into this kind of like bit later. Jeff Gibbs is apparently a, a bit of an armchair psychoanalyst. He has a like a very brief interview with somebody where they talk about like people's religions and political movements as like sets of beliefs and stuff. Um, but he like at, never, at no point really like analyzes his own at any point because he's just like a, a very typical like millenarian Christian apocalypse narrative is his entire worldview. Like this is stuff that we for all that he was like, oh, you know, we need to be more rationalist and humanistic is like just regurgitating apocalypse narratives that have been around since Revelations was written. Yeah. And I mean, so he, he is also just wrong about renewable energy and like using 2008 data. But even if let's even assume that he was right, that renewable energy isn't actually a solution. Like the film doesn't take you anywhere to go with that other than to like roll over and die. <laughs> Well, I, it feels like a hit piece. Like he had like, like he really hates Bill McKibben. 
<laughs> he, it's like he made this whole movie specifically t- to go after Bill McKibben and then he didn't even do it well. Like, I don't know, Robbie, I guess you haven't had time really to soak up the think pieces that came uh, out alongside this movie because we're not alone in thinking that it was terrible. And Bill McKibben actually wrote a reaction to this film in 2019 or 2020, like shortly after it came out. And he was basically like, okay, well, come after me if you want, but how dare you lie about everything I've done? (laughs) He's like, there's so many things you could get me on and you don't have to make it up. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a great way to respond. Like, it's also very weird that this film came out in 2019, which kind of like in my mind still remains something of like a high watermark in environmental movement in the Western world. And then this, this is how you, how you mark that? A weird, poorly researched hit piece? Like, is this really a useful part of the conversation in 2019? <laughs> well, and you would think it, it would be the sort of movie that would come out and then because it's so bad, it would fizzle and disappear. But it came out just in time for, like, people to start watching it after the 2020 lockdown started and it became like a whole phenomenon. Um, just like that pandemic movie, you know, like <laughs> I thought Tiger King would have been the more responsible viewing. Choice. <laughs> I think I mentioned this in the, the Seaspiracy reacts as well, but it's like, I'm really not a fan of gonzo journalism when it's like trying to masquerade as something serious. Like I wrote in my notes four separate times during this movie, fucking gonzo journalist bullshit. Um, Like, you don't get any useful sort of, like, critique of movements by just, like, ambushing people and asking them weird questions and being like, oh, why did they have an answer to this? It's like, well, they weren't there to answer that question. Like, what's wrong with you? Oh, yeah, like that poor park ranger that he was obviously talking about how we needed to look after the environmental movement. And then it, it was completely taken out of context and sandwiched between two, like... People who are like, population is too high. And it's like, <laughs> I don't think that's the point this park ranger was making. Yeah, can we please talk about the eugenicsy undertones of this film also? <laughs> they weren't undertones uh, at all. And I was going to in a moment, but like one of the, the little gags, uh, the gonzo journalist gags, was when he like ambushed the CEO of General Motors and was like, oh, you know, how clean is the grid that these EVs are being charged on? But he doesn't do the math. I did, because this argument comes up all the fucking time. If you're driving an electric vehicle in Alberta, I think this number was in 2019, too. So, like, Alberta has the dirtiest energy mix of anywhere in North America. Like, we are almost entirely coal-powered, or we were in 2019. And it is actually about as environmentally polluting as driving a Prius to drive an EV. Like, there's no real difference in carbon emissions per kilometer traveled. Like, it's still a, a pretty responsible choice from a carbon emissions perspective. Yeah, even if your grid is really shitty. <laughs> and it's like, if you live in Ontario or Quebec that are almost entirely hydropowered or BC. And nuclear, that. which we could talk about as well. But, <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, there's no point in going blow by blow and talking about all of the factual inaccuracies in this film because it's the whole thing. And and what I'm really interested in is is how this movie was received and how Kristen and I just actually, when this episode comes out, we'll have just released some episodes about climate denial. Before we pivot to the next question, though, I just want to highlight one more blow by blow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just such a bad movie that I'm like, I don't want us to go too far down that hole. But yes, please do. Well, it's just on the example that Robbie was talking about 
The one thing I did enjoy about this movie was appreciating how much the like GM, I don't know if she was a CEO or just an executive, but she had clearly for years been planning to say the line. Yeah, they thought we killed the electric car. How about now? <laughs> <laughs> she looks so happy. She, yeah, she she did say it uh, in an artful way um, that you can tell she's been saying at dinner parties for years. Yeah, yeah. Why that little clip is being preserved for posterity. Yeah, there's a lot of people that were just had no idea what they were reacting to when they were answering questions to this guy and how it would be taken out of context. And it just sucks. It's, it just felt bad to watch. And there was also like a whole bunch, a whole bunch of really out of touch, non-related images of just animal cruelty. And I had to look away from the screen a couple of times because it was just meant to be evocative and like... I'm upset looking at these images and I'm now going to associate these images with the words you're saying, even though it doesn't, they don't, they're not connected. <laughs> yeah. And one of them was like, I mean, I, th I just thought the conversation around biomass in particular was really, just really irresponsible. I'm shocked they didn't go to Switzerland. Like, I'm genuinely shocked that they didn't find somebody who was like, yeah, the next step in biofuels is going to be like turning grandma into biofuels. I know. Which, frankly, I mean, that's not a bad use of a dead body. <laughs> <laughs> If you're okay with it, you know? <laughs> oh, my God. Um, but yeah, like, it, coming away from that film, like, if you don't know a lot about renewable energy, A, you think some very wrong things about solar and wind, but you also think that, like, most biomass is, like, direct, like, logged old forest to biomass. It's like, no, we could critique biomass on its own merits because we probably shouldn't be burning shit, but it's, like, mostly like the byproducts of farming or the byproducts of, you know, human waste or the byproducts of logging. It's not like we're taking, for the most part anyway, full trees and just cutting them down and turning them into fuel. And also it's it makes up like 2% of the energy grid. <laughs> That's also true. I was saying this when we were watching it, but I thought it was notable that hydropower did not get included in the hit piece, presumably because they did not have anything to criticize about it. Which is weird because there's plenty to criticize about hydropower. Right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm also surprised that nuclear wasn't in there. Like that seems like a really like classic scare doc target. Robbie, they really had to make room for that sociology professor to talk for five minutes straight in a really rambling narrative and also to have 10 minutes on biomass for some reason. Oh, so there also was just... that stop motion production of, I can't even remember, what was it, a solar panel? That went on for a long time. Yeah, there was a lot of filler in this. <laughs> I was really glad to watch that at two times speed. We watched it at regular speed because we're suckers. Okay, let's, Kyla, cue up your question again, though. It was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I was just going to say, at the risk of being three years late to something that everyone else has already ripped apart, Kristen had a really good idea of connecting it with, this movie hits all of the buttons for climate denial tactics. And for a guy who professes to be a lover of the environment, like, it's almost like it was made by fossil fuel companies, you know, like, I don't understand. Was he I, like, I'm like, was this guy bought off? Does he just really hate Bill McKibben? Like, I don't understand the motivation here. I think this guy was burned by the Sierra Club. And I think <laughs> Michael Moore, this this is me putting on a tinfoil hat, but I think he's gotten some fossil fuel money. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't understand what the motivations are to spread so much like terrible information and doubt claiming to be like oh i'm on the environmental side and it's like you've made this documentary for like 
fascists. <laughs> I, I honestly think it's people who still don't trust the government after Waco. That's the audience <laughs> of this film. <laughs> Let's be real. That's the audience of every Michael Moore film. <laughs> One of the, the connections that I find really noticeable, uh, noticeable about it is that it is just like part of this very long tradition of like neo-Malthusian mystical bullshit that it's like the target audience for the movie is a bunch of deep ecologists who genuinely believe that humanity is a cancer on the world and should be exterminated. Like that is the only target demographic for this movie that makes sense. I don't necessarily think he needs to have like, you know, fossil fuel connections or a personal grudge against Bill McKibben. For me, this is just like a, another example of this like ideology of eco-fascism and it's boosters. This is just a guy who deeply and profoundly believes that the only way that we get out of this crisis is for literally billions of people to roll over and die. Yeah. And I mean, beyond the eugenics narrative, which I, I really don't think is something we can ignore, but beyond that, Planet of the Humans just hits on so many of the climate denial tactics that Kyla and I just talked about in the episode that we'll have released previously. So obviously there's disinformation in there. A lot of the film was wrong and wrong in a way that was meant to make renewables look like they're impractical, which is not the case. There was also a lot of deflection onto population growth as a solution. Division, I mean, the whole purpose of the film was to hippie punch and to point out green nimbyism so that the climate movement is divided. There's no delaying in this because there aren't any false solutions because they don't propose any solutions. So, well, uh, they imply they imply <laughs> Thanos, but yeah. <laughs> but otherwise they they don't offer any solutions. And then obviously this is just like a doomer movie. So yeah, it was bad. It was really bad. Yeah, <laughs> it was exceptional. It might be the worst documentary I've ever seen. It made Seaspiracy look great. I'll give you that. <laughs> Yeah, I guess, like, for the population thing and, like, eugenics, this is something that, like, I think I've actually talked about on the pod before. This feels like something that I'm just, like, routinely coming on and just being, like, population hysteria is not real. Like it, it was actually really frustrating for me in the movie where they brought on a guy who is nominally an ecologist who is talking about, like, boom and bust cycles and populations. But, like, if you are a serious ecologist or literally someone who has taken Ecology 101, you will know that like different organisms have different growth strategies. And so this idea of like boom and bust population cycles is only seen in animals that have very short lives, very short generation times and large brood sizes. In large mammals with long lives, generation times and very small brood sizes, like you do not see big, huge population changes. They largely reach a steady state uh, and stay there with only minor fluctuations around that sort of like steady state. Like That is what a human population curve is going to look like. And all of the evidence of the last 50 years demonstrates quite ably that this is true. That like as human populations sort of like escape out of necessity and deprivation into like a relatively comfortable lifestyle, population growth stalls out or even goes negative but at like a very slow pace. And all of these like mass die-offs that we've seen have not been caused by like regions exceeding their carrying capacity or some other bullshit. They've been deliberately engineered famines. It's like there is no evidence whatsoever for any of this population mythology, but somehow it still keeps on getting fucking 
proliferated everywhere. Yeah, one of the strongest predictors of whether a famine will occur is whether you have an autocratic or democratic government. <laughs> they almost very rarely occur in democracies for that reason. Yeah, and like I think I've mentioned this on the pod before, but like the first case of overpopulation doesn't come up with Malthus. It comes up in Sweden several decades earlier and was specifically linked to the fact that, you know, the elites in Sweden just didn't think there was going to be enough jobs for the people that lived there and didn't want to deal with the social unrest. So they were very clear that they were just like, no, nope, there's more people than there are jobs. So we're going to tell Swedes to like emigrate to Michigan. That's that's how it all starts. One of the details that I didn't know until recently was actually that the Malthusian narrative of like naturally necessary famines and, you know, human beings sort of like reaching regional carrying capacities was one of the major rhetorical justifications for the Irish potato famine, um, which for those who don't know was a deliberate genocidal famine perpetrated by English landowners. There was more than enough food to go around, but it was like stolen and exported just like they did in Bengal 100 years later. These kinds of like narratives around population growth are not just like awareness, which was a very strange thing for him to bring up. He was like, I want to spread awareness. That's kind of his ending note. And, you know, to be honest about what, what the consequences of the climate crisis are going to be. But he's not honest about the consequences of his own beliefs, which is going to be, you know, engineering the murder of billions of people. It's utterly insane. And they talk about how, you know, like, oh, population growth is taboo because the billionaires don't want to, like, talk about it. And it's like, no, they're literally the ones who are boosting it the most. Like, Robert Koch will sell you the bullets to resolve your overpopulation problem. What really interested me about this film, in addition to obviously how overtly eugenicist it is, and I don't usually come into that contact with that kind of media, was like... The fact that they were using corporations as like the boogeyman that's infiltrated green energy, but never actually explored corporations themselves. They were like, oh, gr green energy is evil because corporations have infiltrated it. And it's like, yeah, OK, but but why is that bad? <laughs> you don't talk about the corporations at all. We just like implicitly don't trust corporations. Sure. But you can't use that as like the one reason that like the green solutions are evil. Like, I yeah, it's like the argument that I, I think this was one of the examples in the in the movie, if not, it, it was a similar version of this. But like, the argument that it must be a conspiracy that fossil fuel companies are like promoting solar because Al Gore, famous climate activist, has invested in solar panels. It's like, no, maybe that's actually just like an argument for the success of these kinds of programs. Yeah. And it's weird as well, because like the whole movie is like, oh, corporations have infiltrated the green movement. And our solution to the ecological crisis is not to go after corporations. It's to murder a billion people in Africa. I, I don't know. Like, here's the thing. <laughs> It's hard for us to watch this movie because we've had our critical thinking hats on for so long about the climate crisis. But for anyone listening who maybe liked that movie, they didn't realize, I feel like I should admit that I used to be a Michael Moore fan when I was like a kid. I remember liking Bowling for Columbine, although we watched the trailer for it again last night after finishing this movie. And um, 
it doesn't look good. So, you know, it, <laughs> it, 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 I feel like if, if you're wondering if this is like, I don't know, I want to reach the people who liked this movie and let them know that it's okay to change your mind. I know. I'm like, do I need to re-examine my experience of Fahrenheit 9-11? Was the parent, was the Patriot Act actually good? Wait, no, no. Wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Dick Cheney's still an asshole. We're fine. <laughs> One of the things on that vein that I really want people to kind of contend with is that Jeff Gibbs does try and say that he's like, you know, talking about the real, like the realities of, of the climate crisis. But it's like, please look at the reality of this belief in the population crisis. Like actually think about what it would mean for the world to have your views realized. Like how much human agony and suffering is going to have to be perpetrated to depopulate the earth. Oh, but Robbie, tech bros would argue that all of the people who are going to live in the future matter more than all of the people who are alive now. And since there's going to be more people in the future because of the way that time works, you know, it's better to suffer now for the people of the future. That's like an argument I've been hearing recently. It's very popular amongst tech billionaires in Silicon Valley, in part because it means that they don't have to pay taxes. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I found really frustrating about this film is that you would hear things that were true or were at least half true, and like they would be spliced together in a way that made an argument that I like did not agree with at all. It'd be things like this quote, the takeover of the climate change movement by capitalists is now complete. That's not totally true, but maybe we can make the critique that some organizations are maybe too in favor of tech solutions, and maybe that has capitalist linkages behind it. But, you know, it doesn't follow that we have to roll over and die and like accept our fate. <laughs> <laughs> or Thanos or whatever. Yeah, it's also nice being in 2022 because we have some like fun Canadian examples of the massive disparities in carbon pollution. For those of you who are following along with the Canadian news cycle, today is July 25th, and earlier this week, Canadian celebrity Drake took a private jet from Hamilton to Toronto, a 16-minute flight that emitted more carbon dioxide than like the like several average people emit in an entire year. These are the these are the kinds of like real-world solutions that we could have to the climate crisis, even if you watch this documentary and you agree renewables are total bullshit and we shouldn't bother and we should just try to use less fossil fuels and that's the only option available to us. Which you shouldn't believe because that data is also wrong and outdated. But... <laughs> but, like, but, but even if, even if we can't dissuade you from the fact that this man probably lied about a bunch of things in his movie, um, there are accessible ways that we can address the climate crisis that don't involve doomerism. Um, that just involve like a more equitable distribution of resources and preventing like, you know, one celebrity from emitting more in 16 minutes than everybody else emits in an entire year. These are real possible solutions that we can have, even if you think that, you know, the green movement is just a bunch of like Coke funded solar panel hawkers and yada, yada, yada. Do you guys have more to say about this terrible film or should we move on to the film that I love? I was actually going to say this is like Robbie's last point is a good bridge to the, the other movie uh, for two reasons. One, that it highlights that we're not focusing on the solutions in the Michael Moore movie. <laughs> um, and secondly, because this discussion of class reminded me that neither movie really does a good job of class critique. 
So that's maybe something we can dig into as well. All right. Tell us about 2040, Kyla. Oh my goodness. It's so good. Everyone should go watch it. I will wait if you want to pause us and go watch 2040 right now. It's only an hour and a half long. It's free on CBC Gem. It's an Australian film that is, maybe it's free on the BBC if you're listening in the UK. It's so good. I'm I'm very excited to talk to Robbie about it because I can already foresee some of his critiques with it, but I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I will just describe it quickly. He is like a grade nine science teacher who goes on a trip around the world to find solutions to the energy crisis, to the agricultural crisis, to the oceans crisis. And he touches on probably like, well, I mean, he uses the donut model of economics. So uh, we recently read the donut economics book, which I liked, and apparently so did he. <laughs> they used uh, they used the donut economics framework as a way to structure this film. So they were looking at ways to get uh, people out of poverty and to educate women. And I thought, for what it is, he squeezed a lot into a very short span of time. And like, are you going to have to leave a lot of stuff out? Yes. But is this great viewing for the family or just you by yourself? Absolutely. My immediate, my, my like big impressions from it was that I already liked it just because it had better production value. Like one of the things that I really enjoyed was like little climate gremlin Tony Seba. Like at several points throughout the movie, they just kind of like green screen this tiny little like gremlin version of Tony Seba into scenes. And <laughs> Why did they keep making people small? I loved it. I thought it was so good. I liked at the beginning when he makes his house the the world, and he's like, and he's like trashing his house because it's like cl climate change is happening inside his house. It that made, was cool. It was so good. So good. It was so good. And the framing device of going from 2019 to 2040 and having his daughter be all grown up and living in the world with all of this stuff like visualized. I loved it. Also talking to those kids and using that throughout the film. Like, <laughs> yeah. Each topic he goes through, he introduces it by showing clips of what kids told him they wanted. And like some of them are very serious children making very serious points. And some of them are about inventing rocket boots. Yeah, or having a <laughs> national hot dog day every day. And I'm like, I'm, you know what? I agree with all of these points. <laughs> I skipped those child segments because I thought what? they were silly. <laughs> You're silly. <laughs> yes. Wow, Robbie hates joy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a very serious environmentalist. Mostly I was just like, uh, mostly the reason that I skipped them was because I was having a bit of a time crunch to watch this before the episode. <laughs> I, was like, well, I know there's no content in here much, so I'll probably get a good laugh out of it. Yeah, I mean, it's true. Um, if you do get a chance to watch the movie again, they are very cute children saying very important things. But yes, if you had to skip any part of the film, that's fair. Though the a more serious critique that I did have of like the the weird of the concept of like his message to his daughter um, was just that there is like this brief sketch where like somebody is taking his daughter to prom in like a self-driving car and he does this very like typical patriarchal dad I don't want any other like men touching my daughter kind of thing and I was like oh my dude he did make a couple jokes that were like this is this this man is a dad and he's a little older <laughs> yeah and I mean I do think to a certain degree that was because this film is meant to have a very wide audience and so I think he was trying to connect with people who might have views that aren't maybe as progressive and to sort of bring them in. It's almost like the entire film is an exercise in deep canvassing. 
Yeah. But yeah, no, some of the jokes did fall flat or just made him... I, you know what? I thought it was a charming because it's like, yeah, that's like an outdated form of humor, but he means well. And, uh, you know, it's it's mostly harmless, <laughs> not like eugenics. <laughs> <laughs> um, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a really fun film. I also think it has a lot of potential. Like, I think it had a concept. It did the concept very well. And it's a concept that will appeal to a lot of people who maybe aren't always already as far along the climate pathway as maybe the three of us are. But I also think it was it's helpful for people who maybe have skipped straight from not thinking climate change matters to being like extremely panicky about it. Yeah, I have seen this movie three times now. And the second time I watched it was with somebody who has been experiencing a lot of climate anxiety to the point where I'm a little concerned about them, to be honest. And I think they're listening. Hi, I love you. But uh, I made them watch this movie because I was like, you are spending too much time looking at the negative headlines. And yes, they're frightening. And yes, we need to act. But if you feel like it's already over, then you're we're, we're then it is, you know, <laughs> like if everyone feels like it's we're doomed, then that's not great. But I have a critique of this movie that I think you two are going to have as well. And so I'm going to beat you to the punch. My critique of this movie is that it does focus on tech solutions a lot um, in a way that I like, but it's also like, is more geoengineering what we need to be doing to solve this problem? Well, I mean, it's, it, I don't think there, he supported geoengineering as a solution to the climate crisis, but yeah, there were a lot of other tech heavy. I don't know, like the way that the, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, uh, he wasn't like arguing for like cloud seeding. No, 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 no. Like but that. like, like the one that um, gets me the most is the one with the um, seaweed in the ocean. Oh, marine permaculture. Right. And so it's like, okay, yeah, but is planting, like, is us being in control of another ecosystem going to solve the problem that we've created, right? Yeah. I, although I also just think this like narrative of, like it plays off off of this idea of like the untouched wilderness and humanity, um, a hu like a, a model of humanity that doesn't interact with its environment. And that's just like, that's a historical, you know, like going back to every culture, we've, we've modified our environments, you know, we've built irrigation, we've in, in like, in, even in the case of like Latin American societies, right? Like the Inca did a lot in terms of modifying their environments, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, like, that's true. But I mean, we're doing it now on a scale like never before. And I don't know. I don't know. What do you think, Robbie? For me, like the, I'm generally like quite techno skeptical. One of the reasons why I didn't get as much, like there were a few, there were a few points, I think, as we go into like a more, piece by piece of the film, I can be more specifically like, uh, this was not right. One of the things that I like that they focus on in terms of how technology is developed is it's sort of like democratizing potential, like starting as they did with like solar microgrids in Bangladesh, I think it was. That to me is like a really strong way to look at technology. So it's not looking at how does a billionaire tech solution save us. It looks at how do we democratize sort of technological gains so that everyone is capable of benefiting from them. And so I think when I was going into this film, my immediate thought was, oh God, this is going to be just like um, the waste-free world in terms of just being like a bunch of techno battle garbage. But I think especially because they relied so heavily on donut economics to explain the sort of like how and why 
of their solutions to the climate crisis, I ended up actually like not feeling terribly bad about everything except their failure to really take on the war on cars as necessary. Yes, yeah, that was the section that is the most disappointing. But, but okay, now I'm gonna now I'm going to bat for the movie. I think this movie is for people who think cars still matter, right? And this is like what Kristen was saying, people who aren't as far along the eco journey as maybe the three of us. And so the idea of getting rid of cars altogether is something that is eroding, you know, with time, people will realize that yes, that's the only solution. But it's like a gateway drug to, to, to getting people to think about like, because he did talk about rideshare and they did show like bus solutions. So like they did mention electric cars, but the solutions that they showed in the future were more like public transit. And I feel like it's almost like a little, like, I feel like they did it on purpose to get people on board. Because if they had said get rid of cars entirely, people would have shut down. Yeah, I think... um this entire film is engineered in a way to keep people psychologically away from the domain of losses, right? So public transit is mentioned, but they don't hit on it too hard because they don't want people to be triggered into that thought of, I'm going to have to give up my car, right? Because that puts you in a negative mindset about the transition. In the same way, plant-based eating is briefly mentioned in the agriculture section, but the main focus is on, you know, having better food, trying a different way of growing food so people don't have to think about that narrative of you're taking away my burgers. And like, we can critique that because it does mean that we're not focusing on some big sources of emissions, but also it might be more effective. Yeah, it gets people started down the right path, I think, if people are starting to think about it, but they're not because like, it's it's like you're a journey, Robbie, with activism, you know, like first you go to a protest and you hold up a sign and it's like, well, actually, that's really easy. I can actually take another step. Right. And I think it's really, really helpful to get people out of that doomerism mindset and into the uh, or into the mindset of, well, they're going to take away all my stuff. So I'd rather watch the world burn um, and get people walking down a path that will eventually lead them to the the inevitable fact that we will need to eat a lot less meat and get rid of cars. <laughs> <laughs> the the film starts with renewable energy and microgrids. So maybe we can talk about that. I liked the way that he showed microgrids accurately, as opposed to the Michael Moore film where they were, they scoffed at smart grids. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, smart grids are stupid. And then they never explain why. <laughs> or even what they were. <laughs> But I love the idea of uh, the honeycomb, the honeycomb like imagery that he was using to show houses connected on a solar grid. And like solar panels are a great solution for like he used it as an example of like disaster relief. And I was like, oh, that's such that's so smart. Yeah. If you have a decentralized grid, the idea being that it might be easier to get some power up, especially in places where you maybe don't have as much the government doesn't have as much means to repair. It might take longer to, to repair a top-down system than a bottom-up one. And I really like the sort of like, as I mentioned previously, the sort of like stealthy way that he brings in a lot of actually like really impactful concepts into this section. That it's like by talking to people about solar grids and microgrids, um, he kind of heads off a lot of concerns that people have about like carbonization and development in the developing world we can take a shortcut and not have to deal with this huge like carbonization period. It's not an essential part of the industrial revolution and like primes people to be ready for that information without having to like belabor the point. 
talks about the democratization of technology as like an important part of our future. Again, without putting it in, ter- in like scary terms of like energy communism and stuff like this. So like, I actually, I really enjoyed this section. Oh, as well as identifying that like one of the primary barriers to this technology is not um, like a physical problem. It's that these kinds of smart grids are literally illegal. And so that gives also people like a good way to sort of like start looking into the ways that it's like, oh, maybe the renewable energies that we want are accessible right now. And here are some sort of like relatively easy campaigns to get involved in in terms of changing regulations around solar panel microgrids in your local community. Yeah, I also think, I mean, I don't know. I don't think that this necessarily needed to be in the film, but I do think the microgrids are a good example of how a class critique could help you understand how how to structure these different solutions. He doesn't really talk about the government at all, and that especially in that section, it's a lot about like, the government can get off my backs if I can buy this device and join a microgrid, right? which might be a really valuable solution in Bangladesh, but could also lead to like landlords buying up solar panels, overcharging because they're the only game in town for providing power. There are reasons that we do have public grids in a lot of cases. You know, I don't necessarily think that the film needed to get into that, but by not talking about government, he leaves out a lot of possible class critiques in this film in general. And also just like generally, the film never engages with anything that is sort of like critical or problems. And one of the really interesting ones in this energy section is that they do talk about like retraining energy workers. And they show this nice little like montage of blue collar Appalachian coal miners uh, who have presumably been retrained to install solar grids and stuff like this. And never really addresses that, like, one of the reasons why the Obama era policy on sort of like retraining for coal miners failed, it had like absolutely terrible uptake. Very few people signed up was because the majority opinion in that community was that, you know, coal was only going to be disappearing because Obama was in power. He'd get ousted in however many years and they'd rather weather some hard times in the coal industry and wait for it to make a big comeback than to sort of like admit that their way of life was over and that they had to retrain. Um, And so it's like there are some sort of like bigger persistent cultural problems and political problems that we need to address as well in terms of like genuinely convincing people that it's like, no, coal is dead and it's never coming back and that these are actual barriers. That's a bummer story. (laughs) Yeah, it is kind of a bummer, but I find it very useful and instructive as well, because it really demonstrates that it's like, you know, you can't just ignore these sort of cultural connections to the way we make our lives. Yeah, I think the reason that they might not have gone into that is, first of all, it was already like an hour and 40 minutes. And also, there's so much critique out there that I think this guy really wanted, he's like, you know what, you can find that stuff Uh, you know, so many other places. This movie is just here to make you feel good. (laughs) Yeah, and also like retraining is something that a lot of governments are doing a lot more now. So yeah, you, you do need to like have climate education and to some degree you might face opposition and, you know, maybe there's some like education pieces or other things like that that could be worked around on that. But as a general solution, retraining is a good approach and one that we have to do as part of like the transition. Yeah, it's absolutely necessary. Should we talk about cars now? I would like there to not be any more cars. I'm with Kristen right now. This is um, our first hangout in person in 
like a little while. It was nice to watch the documentaries together. We had a great time, except for the Michael Moore one. That's just painful to watch no matter who you're with. But Krista and I, every time we walked down the street, <laughs> she, I, I'm like, oh, you know what would make this street nicer, Kristen? Is if there weren't any cars. And I did it so often that I think it might have gotten very old. <laughs> I was thinking of instituting like a pay every time you say this jar. <laughs> I mean, I did. Come, we went to we went to Montreal and it's a very walkable city. Like it, it, very walkable. I was very surprised and it made me so happy. I was delighted every time we walked down a street where cars weren't allowed. Yeah, I really like that the section opens with him just like stuck in traffic in America. And he's just like, this sucks. <laughs> it was such a good thing. Yeah, and he makes some really good points about like how stressed we all are from having to drive and how it's making us all miserable. So I did feel like he he didn't necessarily say that getting rid of cars would be a solution, but I feel like it was implied very heavily. It was, again, trying to keep people from being afraid that there is a war on the car, but gently... Gently nudging people in the direction of, well, you know, maybe be part of a, sh a car share or and maybe you won't even want a car in the future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, one of the, the challenges, obviously, that like automated transportation makes and these sort of like fancy visions of the future is just that like they run into the same problem as any other personal vehicle based road system, which is that like most of the demand for vehicles and road use is only like two hours a day, during which point everyone needs to get somewhere to go to work. And then there's very little traffic in between. But so unless we have like a broader reorganization around work, which is kind of happening by accident as a result of the COVID pandemic, personal transportation is just never going to be viable from like a space or climate perspective. That as long as like road use has like peak hours where every single person needs a car and then huge dead time in between where nothing is happening, you're never going to be able to have personal transportation be viable and healthy and reasonable from like a climate use perspective, even if they're electric, even if they're automated, which is why I think it is more important to really like hammer home that it's like, we will have to like have public transit, but you know, public transit doesn't have to be this miserable, awful thing that people usually think of it as because it's been neglected for 60 years. We can have luxurious, pleasant, on-time, relatively frequent public transit that works for everyone. Lots of places already have it. If you really need help imagining it, you know, go to Berlin or, or Switzerland. Yeah. <laughs> I had a friend who was, uh, she was working in Switzerland and it was like her first week and she was late. She claimed it was because the bus was late, but I think it was like she had kind of, you know, gotten confused on transit because she told that to her boss and her boss was like, no, it would have made the news if the bus was late. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember if this was in the, uh, the transit section or somewhere else, but I remember seeing in one of their sort of like visions of 2040 that there was a Hyperloop branded train go by. Oh, no, really? Oh, no. Oh, no. Okay, you did get me on one thing, I guess, for this movie being bad. But here's the thing. Um, it was above ground, and it was a train. So like all the reasons for the hyperloop <laughs> sucks, <laughs> we're, we're, not, we're not there. I was just like, this is like a weird, 
maybe Hyperloop will get better in the future. Maybe by 2040, Elon Musk will have stopped trying to be an absolute fucking donkey. That is a weird thing to include in this film, though. Like, why brand the train at all? <laughs> like, I mean, I guess they probably want to get Elon Musk fans on board, too. He's <laughs> trying not to alienate anybody. Do we have any more on transit or are we ready to go to agriculture? As I think the only person here who's worked on a farm. I think one of the things that uh, maybe I have more to say about this section than other people do, but um, farming is hard. One of the things that I, I always kind of like look at with a certain degree of skepticism whenever it gets brought up is this like urban farming and like growing stuff on your roof and your balcony. And it's like, this is actually very time consuming, but it's also funny how much of like a long delusion this has been in sort of like people who are discontented with urbanism. One of um, the funny things about reading Kropotkin's The Conquest of Bread, which was written in like the 1880s, is that like this home, home farming movement is like a very big part of his agricultural plans for like a theoretical anarchist commune in Paris. That it is like being a very persistent idea for a very long time that is like not really materialized because it's actually like extremely challenging and labor intensive to do those kinds of like small plot urban farms. And without like a radical reorganization of work, which we should also do, people simply will not have the time for it. But also just like a lot of people are not going to want to do it actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you could have more of a model of like community farms or collective farms. I was thinking the entire time throughout this section of a workshop that I was at in Edmonton on the Prairie Urban Farm, which is, it's a community farm that has some connections to the university in Edmonton. And I was at a workshop where we started out hearing from an agroforestry guy about food forests, because um, the farm, they're planning to develop a food forest and sort of how that design works. And then we did a bunch of farm work. But like that kind of model could work fairly well, where you have a team of maybe 20 volunteers, they're able to sort of share the outputs. It works less well in a context where it's at your house, right? Especially if you are a renter and your landlord controls your outdoor spaces, you may have limitations in terms of whether you're even allowed to do that. And um, as you mentioned, the sort of time constraints. Prairie Urban Farm is great. 10 out of 10. Wonderful place. To any of our Edmonton listeners. Go spend a day working in the dirt. What did you think of the dirt demonstration? Oh, very cool. Very real. I, I really like all the, the permaculture and like reducing pesticide and fertilizer use. And it actually, again, um, because it's July 24th of 2022, for those who are listening to the 25th, listening later, right now, one of the big things that's like consuming Canadian politics is that Justin Trudeau has introduced some nitrogen regulations on fertilizer use on farms because Canada is facing like a pretty significant problem with like over-nitrification, lots of nitrogen-based runoff, and just like people polluting the environment with excessive application of fertilizers. And so like there's a lot of pushback against this. And one of the things that, that you know, kind of becomes a mantra is, you know, farmers know what's best for their fields. But one of the things that I really appreciate about this movie and the way that they told this story about agriculture in Australia was a farmer who was like, my land was not getting the yields I thought it should. And so I tried to do things that I'm told I should do, like add more fertilizer, and it didn't help. 
So actually, like these things are quite challenging and sort of innovations in agriculture are always important and welcome and new. So yeah, it's like we can do a lot more with less fertilizer by just like changing how we grow crops, what crops we grow. Also, again, one of my problems with this is that it is often sold as like a new thing. But again, in Kropotkin's The Conquest of Bread, like a lot of time is spent talking about sort of like ways of industrializing farming and agriculture, which is weirdly reminiscent. So it's like, these are again, like very old solutions, though effective ones. Yeah. And I mean, I think another important element is how it's not only just that it can be complicated and as a farmer, you know, maybe the things that you think you should do aren't actually the things that would be most helping your farm. It's also that like farmers are increasingly squeezed under this model, right? Like they have to pay in to Monsanto to get their seed. They have to pay in, they think they have to pay in for for fertilizer. You know, you may have to have large number of machinery. In some cases, you actually like lease the the equipment that you're using. And so people can be very beholden to big agriculture in a way that is challenging to sort of separate from. But I, I really liked the vision. I thought it was really pleasant. Yeah. And like, what's cool about the movie is that you get an idea of like, wouldn't it be cool if we got to this point? And because you're visualizing an end point that's really hopeful, it's easier then to back up and go, okay, what's the first step to to realizing this? What's what's in the way of this vision? And then you can look at problems like being in the <laughs> being beholden to big egg and 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 think of solutions to that. You know, like it's really valuable to be able to have a vision that you're aiming for. <laughs> yeah, one of the the things in this section that I did not like, and this will probably not surprise anyone, is. Regenerative ranching, um, which is a capital S scam. It's a really interesting idea. The problem being that like cows are not native grazers in most ecosystems. So actually like when people are talking about, oh, grazing herbivores are like key to like ecosystem sustainability. It's like, well, not when they're cows and also farm fields are not part of the ecosystem almost categorically. So it's just like a very strange thing. It's also that, like, once again, big ag has massively assimilated regenerative ranching. In the United States, there have been several problems with, like, big regenerative ranch ranches and dairies that have been, like, leaning on the park service to basically open up more and more and more park space so that they can regeneratively ranch the lands, destroying forests, displacing animals, and ruining ecosystems in the process. But then it's also that it gets kind of introduced as a way that we can continue to grow meat, but sustainably. And this runs into two problems. The first being that like the pop or three problems, the population of animals that you can support with regenerative ranching is actually quite small because again, you're not trying to exploit the land to grow animals on. You are trying to like foster a almost closed ecosystem and you can only extract so much from that. People really don't realize how young in their lives we slaughter animals And that it's like, if you have this constant churn of breeding stock, you're not going to be able to like maintain a usable herd for regenerative ranching. But also that like part of the reason why grazing herbivores are so good for the ecosystems that they lived in was because they also died in them. Like one of the the things that made the, like the buffalo a core part of the Great Plains was that even when it was like slaughtered and eaten uh, by the people that lived there, like it was still returning to the earth. 
But if you have a regenerative ranching system on a farm in like old Alberta, and that meat ends up getting sold in New York City, like you are still having to extract a huge amount of energy from that system to feed that cow and then slaughter it. And so it's just like regenerative ranching is something that can be done, I think actually quite effectively, if you do not expect to get much, if any, meat from it. Like mostly what you are going to want is like a small population stable herd that, you know, you're not going to be able to just like slaughter a cow for meat because you need it for its ecosystem services. Like if we start treating animals as farm workers, which is what they really are in like a regenerative ranching system, you then also can't just be slaughtering them. <laughs> you shouldn't slaughter your workers. <laughs> for all that I have some like critiques of regenerative ranching, I do really enjoy the way that they did the storytelling in the farming episode because it's like it's really easy to kind of do what Planet of the Humans did and like do this big conspiratorial narrative about how big ag is like destroying our soil and ruining our farms for profit, yada, yada, yada. But I think it was actually really good that they just like create this sort of organic storytelling moment of the guy being like, hi, this is my livelihood. Something wasn't right. I looked for a solution and I found it. Here's my solution. Isn't this nice? I really like it as a way of sort of like arriving at a better way of sort of just like introducing these concepts to people and just being like, hey, we should trust the knowledge of the people that do these things more of the time and make sure that they have the freedom to kind of like experiment and try new things and see what works and see what doesn't. Maybe we can live in a better world. It's really nice. Yeah. And it's a little bit nicer than Gibbs's gotcha on the street where he just asks strangers walking by solar farms uh, what they think of the solar farm. <laughs> yeah, you can tell this documentary really thought about like, who are the right experts to bring in? Where is the right point to include them in the narrative? And what are we going to talk about instead of just like, ah, <laughs> you're at a climate protest. Therefore, I'm going to ask you these questions you're not prepared for. Are you guys ready to move on to the next topic? Marine permaculture. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the one that I, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it. I love how fast seaweed grows. My jaw hits the floor every time he says that it grows like half a meter a day and that it's the fastest growing tree in the world. But then on the other hand, I'm like, well, will that fix our ocean dead zones or is it too late? <laughs> I think it's a very cool solution. I really love this section. I was like, this just like tickled a little part of my like science fiction brain. Like one of the, the video games that has been surprisingly impactful on the way that I see the world is Sid Meier's Alpha Centauri. And like that game waxes poetical about like kelp farms so often. And so it was very nostalgic for me to just be like, oh yeah, this is, this is like my science fiction of my childhood coming to life with these like floating kelp farm platforms. It's very cool. Oh, good. I'm glad that you like them. Uh, Kristen, what do you think? I mean, seaweed's great. I think <laughs> I think the dude that they interviewed was very into seafood as like the one solution to all of world, the world's problems. Uh, <laughs> yeah, which it won't be. But it seemed fine. I don't know. Well, and we need we need people in we were talking about this last night. We need people in all of the industries to think that their industry is going to solve the world's problems and then they throw themselves like wholly into it, you know, we need, we need, uh, we need people in seaweed. We need people in agriculture. We need people 
in energy that just think that this is the solution because like really all of them are the solution. It's true. It's true. No, I thought that was neat. My only other comment that I have written down here is they had shown what you could do with oil platforms, I think just incidentally in the oh, section. Oh, that was a 2040 vision. And they turned the oil platforms into like hotels where you could go like go and visit the ocean. Oh, I would so stay in a hotel that was a, <laughs> that used to be an oil taker thing. Yeah, it sounded like such a rad idea. I would definitely go on vacation there. <laughs> One of the reasons as well, maybe Kylo, why this will help sort of like ease your anxiety around this like ecosystem modification we'd be doing with planting huge kelp forests is that as I've mentioned before on the pod, like planting trees is a terrible climate solution. If you go onto the like Canada government or NSERC, the national council for like resources and stuff, they track carbon emission and sequestration in Canada's forests. And Canada's forests have been net carbon emitters for the last 15 years. I think they're going to be releasing new data pretty soon that will like not be any different. And in a very small way, I actually contributed to those reports because while I was fact-checking myself for another thing, I realized that on all of their graphs, they had put in C02 instead of CO2. Oh, no. And I sent them an email saying, hey, you should correct this. Contributing to science. Nice work, Robbie. <laughs> Like, so the reason why forests have become net carbon emitters is because of like land use changeover, the increase in the number of pest species, the greater number of forest fires. And like this has pretty catastrophic consequences for carbon offsets, as we mentioned in that episode. It was actually a more recent scandal, I guess. People were trying to use like Bitcoin as a carbon offset and sort of like you would buy this coin and they would plant oh, trees. But it's so environmentally unfriendly. <laughs> yeah. But in addition to that, the the place where they were buying trees was like in the California wildfire zones. And so uh, in the like two years that this has been operating, both summers, uh, they're just entire forest preserve burned down. Like <laughs> no carbon was offset. It's funny, Robbie, when you said when you were mentioning like a scandal in tree planting and offsets, I just assumed you were talking about like the, the company in Spain that has set off two wildfires in like the span of a month. <laughs> but <laughs> apparently there are others too. Well, we all know that carbon <laughs> offsets are flawed. <laughs> They're not the best. Yeah. Listen to our episode on it. You did a great job. But one of the reasons why I like the sort of like planting kelp forests um, is that it doesn't run into as many of the same problems. Like kelp forests can't burn down. And like, as the doc mentions, most of the carbon dioxide and most of the heat that we've generated from human activity has been sequestered in the oceans. So like one of the reasons why planting trees is not particularly useful is because like atmospheric carbon is, you know, not the biggest place where that carbon is being held. So going straight to the source and planting seaweed in the oceans to mop up seaweed there and helping to use these sort of like columns of kelp to sort of also create more ocean churns or bring up more cold water from below. Both of these are like much more direct ways that we use sort of like plants as a response to the climate crisis than planting trees. So yeah, I would, I would much prefer to plant kelp forests than plant trees at this point. Nice. I do feel better. And that was the only part of the film that I was questioning. So now it's, it, can, it can remain my favorite movie with a weird Hyperloop brand placement. Yeah, doing my best to create a, a balanced uh, approach for you. 
So the last thematic section I found a little bit confusing to describe, but I'm going to tentatively call it climate education and collective action. That was also the section that had some stuff on women's empowerment that was nice, but ultimately felt, to me at least, a little out of place. (laughs) Really? I really liked that part. I really liked the fact that he was like, we need to empower women to solve this uh, crisis. If anything, I felt like that touched on the class issues that you felt were missing from the movie. And like, yeah, they didn't talk about it in a class way, but like empowering women is like such a big problem. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe this is my like cynicism coming in, but it's like such a 2007 development argument. <laughs> like, Yeah, but know. like we still have so many women living in poverty and not finishing their education. It's not like the problem has... I know, but it, like he didn't connect it to the climate crisis really at all. Oh, yeah. Okay, fair enough. It was just like, we should empower women because I have a daughter, presumably was his thought process, but... <laughs> One of the things that I picked up on in this section was that they do offer like, they're kind of like, well, a lot of people believe in the population bomb mythology. How do we address that in a way that's not like fucking awful without also sort of like compromising this like happy go lucky optimism of the movie. And so I think that's why the women's empowerment stuff kind of fell flat for me. Because it really was kind of them attempting to, as we would say in debate, like pre-butt an argument or a criticism of the movie. Because, oh, it didn't deal with population growth. And they're like, no, we did. We said that it's not a problem. We just need to educate girls about family planning. That's true. I forgot about that section of it. Insofar as that's the link to climate change, it's a little fucked up. Yeah, it is kind of fucked up. So I, I don't love that. It's, <laughs> it is um, not as eugenics-y as Michael Moore's film. But I I think that maybe that being the argument is bad, but the solution is good. So I really don't have a problem with it. In that section, I really did like the Oberlin, Ohio environmental dashboard example. It was this example of a community in Ohio that has a basically a dashboard that measures how well they're doing in various aspects of the environment. And he was also talking about a study where they use that environmental dashboard in teaching children, which I think were the same children that he had interviewed throughout the movie. I saw some of the same faces anyway. And the finding was basically that when you teach with something like this environmental dashboard, people are more collective in how they talk about the climate crisis using we instead of I, which is huge. And also that they engage their emotions more when talking about it. So I thought that was an extremely cool example. It really hits on something um, a friend of mine talks about quite frequently and is quite passionate about, which is like in-place learning. And so that Oberlin dashboard is useful because it does really like localize it. It does set these children. And instead of learning about things that are like set by a curriculum board in the, you know, big city, a hundred kilometers away about like history that is dead and they have no part in, it's literally like, Hey, we are going to like look at how your parents and your neighbors and like even you are doing in the climate crisis. I think that's really cool. Just like making sure that people are educated in a context that doesn't depersonalize them and doesn't depersonalize their history, but instead is like deeply rooted in this like very present immediate example. Yeah. And I would totally go to a 2040 party celebrating emissions going from going up to going down because like the very last image of the film is his daughter dressed as like a little green princess going to a climate 
a climate party in 2040 celebrating that there's carbon di- more carbon dioxide leaving the atmosphere than entering it for the first time. And I was like, what a nice way to end this film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And to be fair, one of the things that I think we've kind of like mentioned several times throughout the film is that like it doesn't make a particularly specific class critique in language that we recognize. But like it does rely so heavily on Raworth's donut economics to kind of explain its logic and like her donut economics is like a really fascinating sort of like fundamentally socialist paradigm as far as i'm concerned like it does really emphasize that you know there is not room for unlimited exploitation that we can neither have the like high extremes or in either direction and need to focus on like a more planned rational economy that you know, has definable needs that it meets rather than like profits that it achieves. And so it's like so much of how they conceive of the climate crisis and solutions are baked into that kind of like deeply class analysis, honestly. So I don't know. It was one thing that I really liked how it kind of like tied a lot of the film together, how in each one of the sections, they kind of end with a, these are the different sort of like parameters of the donut that it affects. This is how it pulls people out of the middle and prevents sort of like spill over on the outside as well. It gives that really focused kind of narrative of being like, we should only allow a certain amount of of excess in our system. I thought that really tied together a lot of the sort of like more liberatory aspects of the film. So is this your guys' favorite movie of all time now? Or is it like second or third? It's still Death of Stalin, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Robbie, thank you for joining us for a Reacts episode. This one was really fun. I really enjoyed this one. I I got to watch my favorite movie. I got to watch my new least favorite movie. (laughs) (laughs) And then we got to talk about both of them. What a joy. And I think everyone should watch 2040, especially if you're experiencing climate anxiety, because it really does a good job of making the point that there are solutions. There are people working on solutions because sometimes it's, I felt like this before we've talked about it on the podcast where I feel like nobody is working towards solving the problem and it's just getting worse, but that's not actually true. There's people everywhere you look that are wanting to solve this problem. I thought that was the best message of the movie. Thanks for sitting here with us, for chatting with us. As always, it's a pleasure to have you and I'm looking forward to the next one, which will either be really good or really bad. (laughs) No promises yet. In the meantime, though, listeners, thank you for joining us. You can check out our partner shows at harbingermedianetwork.com and you can catch us on our next episode. While the people are like, oh, I want to eat oysters and mussels. It's like you do realize that they're just like garbage filter feeders, right? (laughs) Don't ruin bivalves for me, Robbie. It's the one animal I eat. (laughs) 